Hello and welcome back to Broken Oars Podcast. You'll be able to tell by the fact that it's me, Aaron, the northern one introducing this rather than Lewin, that this is something of a solo flight and you would be right. Lewin and I do these from time to time because we like the sound of our own voices, I suppose. But in this instance, a little while ago, I did a series on the Romantics, the Romantic Poets, and it was fairly well received. There were some comments because I went straight in at quite a high academic level. So I didn't do the BBC, ITV, celebrity-led documentary where it's about the life as much as it is about the work. I went straight in with academic concepts and literary theories and all of those kind of things. And it led to a couple of comments such as Aaron, what's a linguistic slippage? To which I could only respond, a linguistic slippage is what my grandfather used to tell me he'd give me if I didn't get away from his leaks. Get away from those leaks or I'll give you a bloody linguistic slippage, lad. Anyway, I thought what I'd do as we head into summer and we're out and about more and the nights are longer and we're maybe walking with a podcast on or maybe we're travelling to a holiday with a podcast on or maybe we're lounging by a beach somewhere and we just want something to listen to that's interesting, I thought that I would do some briefer and more listener-friendly, I think would be the best way of putting it, um, explorations of poets and poetry. Now I know to some of you that might sound about as much fun as nailing your bits to a plank of wood using a large hammer and rusty nails, but give it a chance because I'm not going to go straight in with Baudelaire's theory of this and the theory of that and the theory of the other. We're going to talk about poets and poetry in an accessible way and I think that um, you might get something from it. I know that I will because I get a chance to use my brain and talk about things that are a little bit more niche perhaps in terms of the podcast but which are still interesting so yes so let's give it a whirl so the first thing is as i come into this one of the things that's driving it is there's still this thing this thing around literature and the idea that literature somehow has to be morally improving or has to be a commentary upon the state of the world and you will find and I have these in my family and I've certainly met them professionally and personally people who go oh you must read you must read so and so you must read so and so such and such it's life-changing it's so powerful Um, or you'll get someone to go oh you you haven't read X you haven't read X really but why not you haven't read X everyone must read X X is wonderful X is life in changing, X is life improving, X X says everything about the state of the modern world and the plight of the X, Y and Z. And that is so much absolute and utter nonsense. The cultural thing where we evaluate people based on the books that they've read or their apprehension or their understanding of certain writers and artists is a fundamentally class-based one. And it's as nonsensical as judging someone on their taste in music. It's really that simple. Have I read everything that you are supposed to read if you are a literate and cultured person? Yes, I have, because I used to teach it and would like to do so again. The reality was some of it was genuinely wonderful. Some of it was wonderful. Some of it was not worth the paper that it was printed on. 
and I could only get it down second flush because it was so bad I just used to put it in the toilet in lieu of buying toilet paper. In lieu, do you see what I did there? The reality is, and I'm talking to the converted, I'm sure, because the Broken Oars listenership is a highly educated, highly intelligent one. You should read and listen to and watch and do what you like to read and listen to and watch and do. It's, it's as simple as that. I have a soft spot for George MacDonald Fraser. I think that his first Flashman novel created meta. It created the idea of meta and the now commonplace idea of placing fictional characters in real life events. More celebrated versions of things like Zelig and what have you. I don't sit down and think, I need to read something to improve me. I need to read, I must read so-and-so, so-and-so because otherwise so-and-so will judge me. It's ridiculous, you should read what you like listen to what you like, you should watch what you like, you should do what you like. And you shouldn't ever let anybody judge you because they go, you haven't heard so-and-so's interpretation of so-and-so's fourth requiem just before he died of the tuberculosis, you know, when he had syphilis. I can't talk to you anymore. Our friendship is at an end because that's just nonsensical. So I'm doing this to kind of explode the idea that literature is a club that we have entry to or we are excluded from depending upon what we've read and what we understand about what we've read. People who write, people who paint pictures, people who create symphonies or pop songs are no different to any of us. They're not any better or any worse, they're just doing something that they do in their lives in the same way that we all do something that we do in our lives. So this idea that if you don't read, there's something wrong with you, or if you don't read the right books, there's something wrong with you, or if you read certain books, then there's something wrong with you because they're not literature, in inverted commas. Um, you know, literature with a capital L. Those ideas are nonsense. Read what you like, read what you enjoy. Listen to what you enjoy. That point's been made. So what I'm gonna try and do is make poetry, for those of you who don't get into it or haven't got into it, interesting. Uh, I think we're going to talk about the lives of some of the poets that I'm talking about because it's always interesting to find out how other people live. We're going to talk a little bit about their work and we're going to talk about what that means in terms of the culture that we live in here in Britain because a lot of these writers uh, informed ideas of England and Englishness that we still carry to this day even though they don't actually really apply anymore. I'm going to pinball back and forth through different time zones, so I might start I might start in the Victorian period and then leap ahead to, I don't know, the 60s or the 70s and then bounce back to the 20s and the 30s. Uh, we'll just see, we'll, we'll, we'll play it by ear, but I think there might be five or six of these and it might pass the time. So what is poetry? Let's start with that. Poetry is a metrical form uh, of, of writing, that's it. Uh, Philip Larkin, who I'll probably talk about, but I don't really want to because he was a crude racist, said that the difference between novels and poetry is that novels are usually about other people, although in the kind of the modern age and the with this solipsism and narcissism of modernity, uh, they tend not to be as much about that. But he said that novels are about other people and poetry is about yourself. Like a lot of things that Larkin said, that's something that we can pretty much safely dispute. 
Um, someone like Thomas Hardy didn't like his poems being read as personal documents. But with regards to the poets that I'm going to talk about, it can be taken as kind of a starting point. Because right now in Britain, and indeed in most of the Western world, as we live in what's now being called the parasocial age, the age where we are biography and personality led because of social media, social media influences, the way that we are identifying with icons and artists and public figures for their biography and their life much more than anything that they actually do. There is a taste for biography um, about public figures. If you go to somewhere like Germany or France, they find that a bit mystifying. Um, some authors, the authors that I know love people to ask them about their work because they rarely get asked about it. Um, the old school authors tended to think that it was all in the work and you should just be kind of dealing with that. We could get onto emotive theories of art, but we've already kind of touched on that. Which is, leads us into the ideas of things like the official biography. When a writer or a public figure puts forward an official biography, you know, like, this is my life, this is what happened in this order, you can pretty much safely assume that they're doing so because they have something to hide. And the reality is that everybody has something to hide. Um, so this isn't them somehow being different to us, this is them just being human. With poetry and public figures, or public figures who are poets, or public figures who are public figures because they are poets, there's a tendency to think of the poetry being almost like the stuff on display, but in you know in the window as you walk past. But the real stuff is really in the shop, and that's that's what you've got to go. You've got to get past the poet, the poet's work. You've got to get past the poem, and you've got to go into the shop, and that's when you'll find the real meat. That's not necessarily the case. Um, we're going to talk about the lives of some of these poets and some of their work because it will help to give an understanding of their work and an understanding of its place in kind of the cultural narrative. Often when you have that kind of official biography thing, the artist is worried that their life will invalidate the art. Um, that is a massive thing at the moment because it is turning out that a lot of our heroes turned out to be not pretty, be particularly good people. And by heroes, I mean heroes in the world of music and culture. If you look at someone like David Bowie, who it is now pretty clear slept with underage girls when he really shouldn't have, being an Englishman in the middle of the 20th century, he pretty much knew that sleeping with underage girls was illegal and rock and roll doesn't really give him a pass to break the law in a legal sense or indeed in a, in a moral sense either. Those questions of can we enjoy the art when we know that the artist was not a particularly nice, good or good person are pretty simple. The answer is no, you can't. John Martin wrote songs of ethereal otherworldly beauty. If you listen to Solid Air or Bless the Weather, they will take you to a amazing spiritual place. But the reality was he was a violent alcoholic who beat his partners, who ruined his first wife's career for the sake of his own, was absolutely horrible to his children. And all of the ethereal meditations on love and union that he penned 
don't actually count because they're not worth the cost that it took to produce them. We're going to touch on the lives not looking for something prurient or some kind of gossip, but to, to inform the work. Okay, so that's kind of the thinking behind this little summer series. And let's call it the summer series of poetry. How about that? Okay. And don't feel, if you've made it this far, that you need some credentials to listen to this. There are a lot of writers who's, who have fan clubs. Sherlock Holmes, who we recently you know, covered before the boat race with our Sherlock Holmes adventure. Uh, Jane Austen, um, Anthony Trollope. A prize for any listener who can tell me which English general said one night in the campaign while he was struggling with logistics, oh, good God, I could do with some trollop. And one of his staff officers said, well, so I'll go and see what I can find around the camp. Not realising that he meant actually he'd like to curl up with the latest Anthony trollop rather than go to bed with one. That is a true story. There will be a prize if you can tell me which English general it was. But... Fan clubs. Jane Austen has a fan club. And why, why, why or why do we only ever remake Sense and Sensibility and David Copperfield when it comes to um, the Victorians? There are loads of great novelists. Thackeray was unbelievably good um, if you're into that kind of long semi-autobiographical um, approach to novel writing. But because of that, we think, oh, well, I, I, I need to know something about Austen to get led into the club, or I need to know something about Dickens to get led into the club, or what kind of stuff. The idea that the work is kind of ring-fenced off by people who are guarding it, and you have to get past the gatekeepers. That's bollocks, okay? You could go on your tablet or your phone now and download any book that you want and just start reading it. You don't need anyone's permission, and you don't need anyone's permission to put it down if you think it's crap either. Um... So this isn't a club thing. This isn't a, this isn't a, this isn't a, have you got a degree? Well, you, if you don't, you can't possibly talk about books. Good God. This is just for fun. This is the summer series of poetry. Let's start with Thomas Hardy. Now, most of you out there, some of you out there, a few of you out there might know who Thomas Hardy is. Um, I believe he wrote for Thames Tradesman in the three seat wasn't particularly a great awe but was a steady one and was much loved and admired by all who rode with him the other Thomas Hardy born in 1840 was a writer and he's probably or he was once best known probably for his novels he's more increasingly known now for his poetry and what I like about Thomas Hardy is you can't get any more working class than him. He was essentially, and I say this with all love and reverence, and I'm speaking as a working class man, he was a Dorset peasant. Regardless of the things that he did, the books that he wrote, the poems that he constructed, he was a Dorset peasant. His mum was a cook, his dad was a stonemason who also played the fiddle, and despite that, despite literally being born in the soil, you couldn't get any closer to the soil unless you'd actually been born in it. He went on to fame and fortune. He received the Order of Merit. His ashes are in Westminster Abbey. And he achieved all of that while spending most of his life in the county of his birth, which was Dorset. His success is an interesting one because it came 
predominantly at first through his novel writing. So his first success was The Trumpet Major, A Tale, in 1880. This was published in instalments, as was Tess of the D'Urbervilles, The Mayor of Casterbridge, and his last big work, Jude the Obscure, which always tickled me because I have a cousin called Jude, and he's one of my best friends in the world. There's only a couple of years between us, and we grew up together. And I always wondered whether his mum named him after Jude the Obscure, because he's, he's not obscure at all, or whether it was after Hey Jude, and eventually I found out that it was after Hey Jude. The publication of novels in instalments, now when a novel arrives, it it comes in a big fanfare, it's around for a week to ten days, you get stuff in the Observer or the Sunday Times if you have a great PR team and they manage to get it placed, if you are a significant literary figure like a Philip Harris um, or someone like that, you might get an, uh, an interview piece and that's it. It lands and that's it. It drops like a stone in the pond of modern culture, which means also like a stone in a pond, it vanishes because modern culture doesn't consume the novel in big blocks now. We don't consume things in big blocks. We consume them in little bites. We consume a little bit of YouTube here, a little bit of podcast there, a little bit of TikTok here, a little quick read of the news in our coffee break, a little snatch of music here and there. We actually get stuff in instalments now. And that's how the Victorians did it. The novel came in instalments. There were sound commercial reasons for this. Dickens started this process. He was told by, I believe, Walter Scott, to be a real literary figure, you must publish full novels as a three-volume set costing X guineas. And Dickens went, yes, but if I publish them every fortnight or every month, I can get a penny off everyone who buys the instalment, which is a much bigger return. It meant that you could take an audience with you. It also meant as a publisher, if something wasn't doing particularly well, you could pull it. But it, this is the interesting bit where novels arrive fully formed nowadays. It meant as a writer, if something wasn't working and you, you could tell in the audience reaction by the sales figures dropping off, you could do something to fix it. So you'll find it in Dombey and Son wasn't going particularly well. So Dickens took him to America, which picked, picked sales back up because the interest was then for all things American. So there was a, there was a reciprocal relationship between the, the audience and the writer, which we don't have now. We have agents and we have, we have publishers and we have editors and they all work very hard on crafting something. But in the end, you, you, you arrive with this monolith it, it might be picked up for one new cycle or one re review cycle and then it's on to the next thing, so it gets lost. Those were his major novels. The Trumpet Major, A Tale, um, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, The Mayor of Casterbridge and Jude the Obscure, which was serialised between 1894 and 1895. But interestingly, from 1898 until his death, he really doubled down on poetry. Um, he went back into poetry and he found inspiration in ancient and medieval history, which was a thing in the late Victorian period. The, the, this is when you get the, um, the interest in 
the Arthurian myths and legends, in the idea of the medieval pageantry and the origins of England. He also looked at things like the Napoleonic Wars. There was a familial link here because his grandmother, as he was growing up, used to tell him about the Napoleonic Wars, which she'd witnessed as a young girl. Hardy ended up interviewing veterans of the Napoleonic campaigns, and he also visited the battlefield of Waterloo. The last 30 years of his life or so were spent at Maxgate, a house that he designed near Dorchester, and he lived there with his first wife, Emma Gifford, and after she died in 1912 with his second wife, Florence Dugdale, uh, who was a schoolteacher and a writer of children's stories. When he died, he was held in such high esteem that his pallbearers included A.E. Houseman, Rudyard Kipling, and George Bernard Shaw. Spared cremation, his heart was buried in Emma's grave in the churchyard at Stinsford in Dorset, within walking distance of his birthplace. So let's have a little bit of poetry, and we'll start with Beanie Cliff because that lets us dive back into the life, and we'll see if I manage to dislocate my tongue on some of the alliteration in the fifth stanza. Beanie Cliff. Oh, the opal and the sapphire of that wandering western sea, and the woman riding high above with bright hair flapping free, the woman whom I loved so, and who loyally loved me. The pale muse plained below us, and the wave seemed far away, in a nether sky engrossed, in saying their ceaseless babbling say, as we laughed light-heartedly aloft on that clear sunned March day. A little cloud then cloaked us, and then there flew an irised rain, and the Atlantic dyed its levels with a dull misfeatured stain, and then the sun burst out again, and purples prinked the main. Still in all its chasmal beauty bulks old Beanie to the sky, and shall she and I not go there, once again now March is nigh, and the sweet thing said in that march, say anew there, by and by. What if still in chasmal beauty looms that wild, weird western shore? The woman now is elsewhere, whom the ambling pony bore, and no, knows nor cares for Beanie, and will laugh there nevermore. Hardy was in his 70s when he wrote that. He was 72, and he was recalling or remembering or reminiscing about a visit to Cornwall some 40 years earlier when he'd first met Emma Gifford, whom he later married. She died a few months before he wrote Beanie Cliff, and the grief unlocked a flood of writing from Hardy, of which this poem is one. It's difficult to say, without knowing what he was actually thinking, but looking at the biographical evidence, it would seem that this wasn't as much grief as maybe a sense of remorse. Uh, Hardy and Emma hadn't really got on. There have been narratives that suggested that she was vague and a little bit fey, and some narratives have suggested that she was mad. The reality is, it is a thankless and horrible role to be an understudy to somebody who is driven in any field, whether that is a wife who is sacrificing herself so that her husband can build a successful business career, whether that is a husband or a man who gives up work to look after the children and keep house while his partner builds a successful role. I have known both instances, it is not simply one-way traffic. 
whether that is the partner of a sportsman, a sportswoman who is utterly consumed about getting to the top of their sport. Um, a lot of sportsmen and women tend to be type A personalities and they tend to be very driven to the exclusion of all else, which can be very difficult. Um, when it comes to art and artists, unfortunately there is a narrative which comes from the emotive theory of art that the that the any amount of bad behaviour on the part of the artist can be excused because they are producing great art. And that's nonsense, that's just an excuse for being an arsehole. You can produce great art without being an arsehole. You can be kind and gentle and a dedicated family person and share the washing up equally and still knock out a novel or a tune. It's not really that hard. But back then, possibly, possibly still now, um, writers wanted a wife. But as well as that, they want someone who's a cheerleader, someone who will go, yay, you're great, when they're having one of their fallow spells or depressed spells about what does it all mean and am I actually any good, as well as someone who can, you know, look after the house and do the washing up and make sure that the children don't get under the feet of the great artists as they're producing their work. It's absolute nonsense. I've recorded in studios with my children literally playing with the cables and the, and the microphones at my feet. Didn't make any difference to how the session turned out, made it a lot more enjoyable. Get over yourselves. Anyway, Emma Gifford, Emma Hardy wasn't really suited to either of the roles as a either as a, a cheerleader or a, or, a, or a housekeeper because she had ambitions of her own and Hardy tended to look elsewhere for appreciation and because there is this thing in England about the idea of liking a bit of rough and about the upper classes enjoying slumming it uh, he found that appreciation in a lot of quite grand ladies who were enamoured of literature and his burly husky peasant frame they didn't have Emma's domestic duties to worry about and so he probably strayed. One of these was um, someone who ended up as a secretary, Florence Dugdale, and after a decent interval of mourning, she became the second Mrs. Hardy. Um, this wasn't a massive success either, because as the poem we've just read, Beanie Cliff, shows, he spent most of his second marriage um, recalling the, the delights of the first, even though it had actually been quite a difficult period. So you could say that Emma... Emma Gifford, Emma Hardy, Mrs. Hardy had the last life, had the last laugh there. So let's move on to another poem. Let's move on to Transformations. This is an interesting one. Transformations. Portions of this you is a man my grandsire knew, bosomed here at its foot. This branch may be his wife, a ruddy human life now turned to a green shoot. These grasses must be made of her who often prayed last century for repose. And the fair girl long ago, whom I often tried to know, may be entering this rose. So they are not underground, but as nerves and veins abound in the growths of upper air, and they feel the sun and rain and the energy again that made them what they were. The yew is a tree that's usually found in churchyards. And what Hardy is talking about here is the fact that the bodies that are put into the grounds in churchyards end up 
furnishing the flowers and the trees and the signs of life around so it's about from death comes life in life there is death he was very at home in churches was was hardy he knew his morning and evening services by heart he eventually lost his faith but he continued to go to church and ended up actually designing one at Turnworth near his home in um, Maxgate in Dorset. He'd often cycle there to read the lesson at morning service. It was a ride of some 20 odd miles and there are anecdotes of the congregation coming in and seeing him standing at the lectern at the pulpit to give the service with his bald head gently steaming after his exertions in getting there. For someone who lost his faith, he liked to explore the ideas that were contained within faith. So let's have a look at In Church. And now to God the Father he ends and his voice thrills up to the topmost tiles. Each listener chokes as he bows and bends and emotion pervades the crowded aisles. Then the preacher glides to the vestry door and shuts it and thinks he is seen no more. The door swings softly ajar meanwhile and a pupil of his in the Bible class who adores him as one without gloss or guile, sees her idol stand with a satisfied smile, and reenact at the vestry glass each pulpit gesture in deaf dumb show that had moved the congregation so. There's a lot of there's a lot of disillusion in this poem. There's no there's no moral drawn, there's no judgment in it. He's simply framing a scene. And the thing about Hardy's work is, whether it's in the um whether it's in prose, in novels, or whether it's in his poetry, there is not a lot of consolation or sympathy in it. He's, he's quite hard. He's quite hardened. Um, and even though he explored faith in his work and was a man of faith before losing it, um, religion didn't give him any sense of consolation. He was very grounded and rooted in, in, that, in that sense. Um, he turned to poetry after giving up writing novels because of the hostile reception of Jude the Obscure, um, which it's probably worth pointing out um, was burned publicly by a bishop, which is the sort of publicity that most novelists and writers would die for nowadays, because to have something banned by the BBC or publicly denounced is to increase sales, as Frankie Goes to Hollywood would tell you. But after Jude the Obscure, after the reception uh, of it, he turned to poetry, which he'd written all of his life, and he now devoted himself to um, exclusively. Um, there's a theory, and Virginia Woolf propounded this, that the, the architecting of novels, so the construction of novels, because novels are things of structure. They, they, they work, they... The words aren't that important. What's important is the structure. Uh, the words are almost like the ornaments in, in the church, but it's actually the, the, the buttresses and the naves and the arches that are holding everything up that are actually doing the heavy lifting. Um, so that, that architecting of, of, a, of novels didn't appeal to him, but he could work on a smaller scale with poetry, where poetry requires structure too. But it's on a smaller scale, so you're not spending 18 months constructing something that a critic then pans. He did write some longer pieces of poetry. He wrote one called The, um, the Dynasts, or The Dynasts, about the Napoleonic Wars. 
it's a bit sprawling as longer poetry tends to be anyone who's ever had to struggle their way through the prelude by Wordsworth will know that um, but one of the things that comes out is that earthiness that sense of being rooted um, that's there so this is a section about um, the night before Waterloo someone like Shakespeare would have done it about the common soldiers he would have he would have he would have put them around a campfire and he would have had the, 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 the talk, you know, the dialogue, the back and forth before the eve of battle. What Hardy does is he actually goes further and he goes to the, the common creatures who are being disturbed by the preparations for the coming battle. The islands of E fall together at last and the forms so foreign to field and tree lie down as though native and slumber fast. So are the thrills of misgiving we see in the artless champagne, this harlequinade, distracting a vigil where calm should be. The green seems oppressed and the plain afraid of a something to come, whereof these are the proofs, neither earthquake nor storm nor eclipses shade. Yea, the conies are scared by the thud of hoofs, and their white scuts flashed at the vanishing heels, and swallows abandon the hamlet roofs. The mole's tunnel chambers are crushed by wheels, the lark's eggs are scattered, their owners fled, and the hedgehog's household the sapper unseals. The snails drawled in at the terrible tread, but in vain he is crushed by the fellow rim. The worm asks what can be overheard, and wriggles deep from a scene so grim, and guesses him safe, for he does not know what a foul red flood will be soaking him. Beaten about by the heel and toe are butterflies sick of the day's long room to die of a worse than the weather foe. Trodded and bruised to a miry tomb are ears that have greened, but will never be gold, and flowers in the bud it will never bloom. So the season's intent ere its fruit unfold is frustrated and mangled and made succumb like a youth of promise struck stark and cold. There's a sense of sympathy there with the lives of small creatures who are about to have those lives completely disrupted by mankind and those sense of the sense of the unredeemed life, the unredeemed lives of the small is found in a lot of Hardy's poems. When he was young in Dorset he was once crossing a field where the sheep were penned in and he actually got down on his hands and knees and pretended to crop the grass to see what it was like to be a sheep to see things from the sheep's perspective and the anecdote goes that when he looked up the entire flock was circled around him staring at him in amazement um, when he was born the railway hadn't reached Dorset uh, back in 1840. When it eventually did, it was the Great Western uh, with its terminus at Paddington. There is a theory that, and this is mo mostly in the Victorian and Edwardian period, I'm not sure that it's true today, but it used to be said that the station that you first arrive in London at is the, is the area that you tend to settle in. And it's somewhat true of Hardy because when he came to London to work as an architect, he ended up living in Bayswater, which isn't that far away from Paddington, and ended up being married at St. Peter's, which is in Paddington. Um, the coming of the railways was a Victorian wonder, and Hardy was not alone in writing poetry about it. Uh, like this one, at the railway station, Upway. There is not much that I can do, for I've no money that's quite my own, spoke up the pitying child, a little boy with a violin, at the station, before the train came in. But I can play my fiddle to you, a nice one tis, and good in tone. 
The man in the handcuff smiled, the constable looked and he smiled too, as the fiddle began to twang, and the man in the handcuff suddenly sang with grimful glee, This life so free is the thing for me. And the constable smiled and said no word, as if unconscious of what he'd heard. And so they went on till the train came in, the convict and the boy with the violin. There's a lot of great poems about trains and railways. There are, they are, the train and the railways is a is an established symbol of poetic language, and we'll probably get to something like Auden at a, a, a later date. Um, but there's another one of Hardy's poems which touches on some of the themes of Jude the Obscure, and it's called Midnight on the Great Western. In the third-class seat sat the journeying boy, and the roof lamp's oily flame played down his listless form and face, bewrapped past knowing to what he was going or whence he came. In the band of his hat the journeying boy had a ticket stuck and a string around his neck bore the key of his box, that twinkled gleams of the lamp's sad beams like a living thing. What past can be yours, O journeying boy, towards a world unknown, who calmly as if in curious quiet on all can stake can undertake this plunge alone? Knows your soul a sphere, O journeying boy, O rude realms all far above, whence with spacious vision you mark and meet this region of sin that you find you in, but are not of. I've talked about Hardy being rooted in soil. You couldn't get much closer to the soil than the circumstances in which he was born. Um, he was the son of a stonemason. A lot of his relations were farm labourers. Um, some had literally been born in the workhouse and at Hardy's funeral service in Westminster Abbey a tramp um, got into the reserved seats and a neighbour of the Hardys, a clergyman um, got into conversation with him thinking he'd come into the Abbey to get out of the cold but he found to his surprise that the tramp actually knew a lot about Hardy and was most likely one of his relatives um, quite typically of the British on the make once he began to progress in his life Hardy tended to cut himself off socially from his lower background um, while ironically artistically he was drawing on it more and more he tried to bump up his social origins he tried to rewrite his history um, he made a great deal of the vaguest of well-to-do connections which a lot of people who work in the arts nowadays who have um, privately educated public school backgrounds and who come from more comfortable circumstances tend to, doubt, tend to downplay their privilege. Hardy actually would play everything up. So if he met someone who was famous or entitled or titled, um, he would talk about it and make a lot of the connection. When he was an old man, and something of a celebrity. He was visited by the Prince of Wales, later the Duke of Windsor, um, and they had lunch together. The gardener, um, who was as much of a social climber as Hardy, um, actually ended up appropriating the chicken bone that the Prince had gnawed the meat off and kept it as a souvenir. Um, To come to the poetry, or to come back to the poetry, the thing about Hardy is that he, I would say, exemplifies the idea of the artist as craftsman. So he's making a thing. 
there's not a lot of the ideas about divine fire and inspiration which are so much bollocks anyway because art like anything else like rowing like life like doing well at your job like passing exams art involves a huge amount of hard work and it is a craft because you are fitting things together um, in the most efficient way you are using forms you are using predetermined materials and your job is to kind of fit all of those and because of maybe that craftsman idea some of his verse can be a little bit unwieldy or can be a little feel a little bit ungaily perhaps um, it's not necessarily the smoothest metrically but I think one of the reasons for this is that he will use vernacular and he will use ordinary conversation within the verse and in some of his poems he'll even use things like advertising copy or signage um, so he's not reaching for the ideals of poetic language as laid down by someone like a Spencer or whatever, which still had a lot of, you know, those ideals of what poetry should be still had a lot of sway in the Victorian and Edwardian periods. Um, there's, there's a casualness to his style, a kind of rough-handedness to it that is really interesting and um, enervating. And it was a massive influence on later poets like... Um, Eliot and Yeats, who went on to much more acclaim, but also people like Auden and Larkin owe a huge amount um, to Hardy. A little bit like um, Chaucer and Petrarch, um, the speaking in the vernacular actually opens up literature going forward, opens up words going forward. And you have to love a man who will write poetry about his cat um, T.S. Eliot did it more famously in Old Possum's Book of Cats, which became Cats the Musical with, with uh, later on. Um, but Hardy wrote a poem to his cats. Samuel Butler said that the true test of the imagination is the ability to name a cat. T.S. Eliot said that cats had several names, and the name that Hardy's cat eventually acquired was Kiddly Winkum Poops Trot. And these are, I'll read a little bit of his last words. Last words to a dumb friend. Pet was never mourned as you, purrer of the spotless hue, plumy tail and wistful gaze while you humoured our queer ways, or outshrilled your morning call up the stairs and through the hall, foot suspended in its fall, while expectant you would stand, arched to meet the stroking hand, till your way you chose to wend yonder to your tragic end. Never another pet for me, let your place all vacant be, better blankness day by day than companion torn away. Better bid his memory fade, better blot each mark he made, selfishly escape the by contrived forgetfulness than preserve his prince to make every morn an eve an ache from the chair whereon he sat sweep his fur nor wince thereat rake his little pathways out mid the bushes round about smooth away his talons mark from the claw-worn pine tree bark where he climbed this dusk embrowned waiting for us loitered around Strange it is, this speechless thing, subject to our mastering, subject for his life and food, to our gift and time and mood, timid pensioner of us powers, his existence ruled by ours, should by crossing a breath into safe and shielded death, by the merely taking hence of his insignificance, loomed as large as to the sense, shape as part above man's will of the imperturbable. As a prisoner, flight to barred, exercising in a yard, still retain I, troubled, shaken, mean estate by him forsaken. 
and this poem which scarcely took impress from his little look by his glaring to the dim grows all eloquent of him housemaid i can think you still bounding to the window-sill over which i vaguely see your small mounds beneath the tree showing in the autumn shade that you moulder where you played hardy died in 1928 he lived a long time 1840 to 1928 his grandmother had told him during one long hot summer's day that the weather was similar to what she'd known in the time of the French Revolution. When he was born, the railways had yet to reach Dorset. When he died, the news went by telephone to London and was immediately broadcast by the nascent BBC. Um, although his ashes were subsequently buried in Westminster Abbey, his relatives, um, who knew him better and who recognised that f he, even though he had gone on to great fame and fortune, he was still essentially a peasant, um, claimed his heart, and that was buried in Dorset. Ache deep, hardly, Hardy wrote, but make no moans, smile not, but stilly suffer, the paths of love are rougher than thoroughfares of stones. So, that was a little summer series of poetry on Hardy. Um... If you look in the links below, you will see that you have the option to buy us a coffee, uh, which would be nice. If you'd like to do that, that would be great. We will be back with more rowing stuff shortly. I will be doing the summer series of poetry every Wednesday for the next few weeks. And if you have a poet that you'd like me to talk about, then drop us a message. Okay. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Hope you got something out of it. It was nice to use my brain again. And uh, look forward to catching up with all of you very soon. Bye-bye for now.